I'd like to begin our time with one question. Are you rich? Are you rich? Are you wealthy? The reason why I want to ask that question is because we live in a wealthy world. You know that, right? With so much that this world has to offer, there's so much money going around. We live in not only a wealthy world, but we also live in one of the most expensive places in the world. Anybody trying to buy a house? Anybody seen the prices of cars? Anyone paying prices for gas? The reason why I ask this question is because LA ranks sixth on a list of cities with the most millionaires. Behind New York, Tokyo, our California brethren up north in the Bay Area, London, and Singapore. Just a few details about how many millionaires we have here. We have 205,400 millionaires. We have 480 citizens of Los Angeles that have about $100 million or more. And we have 42 billionaires here in LA. The major industries include entertainment, media, real estate, retail, tech, and transportation, right? We have the Port of Long Beach, lots of money coming through the port. So I ask you again, because I'm a little curious, <laughs> are you rich? People who have this much money go through great lengths to protect their wealth. They go through great lengths to protect their wealth. They take their money out of banks and put them in assets so that the money can grow. People invest in things like real estate or stocks. People take their money and move them around the world so that they may not be subjugated to taxes. People of great wealth do much to protect the wealth that they've earned. We, even as people who may not be as fortunate as these millionaires or hundred millionaires or billionaires, we do what we can do to protect our own wealth. And there's a parallel here in the spiritual world. You know that, right? You know that in the spiritual world, we are, as you had understood the question first off, very wealthy. We are rich in Christ because in Christ, we have everything that we need to live a godly life. We have all the assurances of salvation and forgiveness. The things that the world so deeply wants, we can say we have and possess with great confidence. Why? Because Christ has died and risen again, validating for us that death has no hold on us. And so we are wealthy. And where there's wealth, there's thievery. And where there's wealth, there are always threats. The wealth that the Christian possesses, don't think for one second, is something that you can take for granted because there are people out there that are seeking to dissuade you or persuade you away from the beauty and simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The people in the church in the Colossian area were undergoing something similar. They knew that they were rich in Christ, but yet there were very real and imminent threats to their wealth in Christ. This church, located in the Lycus Valley, uh, 
had within it or close to it two other cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea. And there in those cities, they had many saints that had come to hear the gospel, not necessarily through Paul, although he writes this letter, but more than likely through one of Paul's ministry associates. We see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, that they knew Timothy. He says Timothy is the brother or our brother. We also know in chapter 1 that they knew Epaphras. Chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, and chapter 4. In other words, Paul is writing to these Christians that he had never met, but yet had received the gospel because they had friends in common. And he specifically wrote to them because he wanted to let the Colossians know that they were wealthy in Christ. There was a lot of false teaching that was going around. Actually, in chapter 2, verse 8, you see that some of this false teaching is described in generalities when it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Deception was there, and the way that they were deceiving people was through traditions of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than, in verse 8, according to Christ. The description of this false teaching takes on even more specifics in verse 16 when Paul tells them, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food, drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. In other words, people were telling them, you need more than Christ to be rich. You need more than Christ to be satisfied. And you might be thinking to yourself, we don't have any of that today. But beloved, stop for a moment and listen to what the world has to say. And you will see it all over the place. The world will sell you lies like you need self-help more than God. The world will tell you lies. That you are a naturally good person and that we naturally want to do good things. Rather than pointing out the dark places of your heart where sin resides. The world will tell you that if, if you just do more good than bad, then you'll get into heaven. No, beloved, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel begins with your basic need for God. Because you are a sinner. And so lest you think that we are not like the Colossians in in listening to the things of the world, trying to persuade us away from Christ, just listen to what the world is saying. And you'll see that these threats in the time that Paul wrote these things are very much alive till this day. The growth of spirituality absent of the Holy Spirit is something that the world will push on you. The growth of paganism without Protestantism. You notice a lot of people want to do what's right, but they have no basis for right and wrong. This might be seen in many, many things. Take the ethics class and you'll see it. You will see it. So when you get to Colossians, Paul is trying to redirect the focus of his readers back to Christ. And he's trying to block out the noise of the false teachers that are surrounding them. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, as a quick survey, he tells them, you have faith. And I praise God that you have faith because I've seen this faith in your heart take seed and it's broken ground and it is producing fruit. Don't forget that you possess faith. 
In verses 9 through 14, he tells them, not only do you possess faith, but I'm praying that that faith would be strengthened because the, the, the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that lives in you. In chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, he, he gives this hymn of Christ where he reminds us that Christ created everything. That he is the image of the invisible God and that all things came into being through him and that all things were for him. He's trying to raise in the minds of his readers that Christ is everything. In chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, he talks about reconciliation. You know, the world wants reconciliation, but they don't know how to get it. Relationships are broken left and right. People that were once united, living in division, are seeking for unity. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, he reminds them that true reconciliation between God and man, and even between us as human beings, is accomplished because of Christ. And then in chapter 1, verse 24, all the way to chapter 2, verse 5, which is where our passage lands today, you have Paul saying, this is what I've put my whole life around. This message of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ. Paul's focus in the passage that we're going to look at today is going to provide for us three features of genuine faith. Three features of genuine faith that all Christians possess. All of us have this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you possess these three features, and it is your responsibility to nurture these features of faith. And God calls us to nurture these features of faith so that we would not be swayed away from Christ by the false teaching that surrounds us. Three features of faith. Faith. The first one being that genuine faith strives for a Christ-centered life. Those who genuinely believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strive for a Christ-centered life. Notice what Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 says. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. He speaks in verse 1 of a struggle. The word here could be translated or understood with the same idea as laboring or striving. And it's not the first time that he uses this word because it shows up in the end of chapter 1 in verse 29. It says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. Paul is saying that there's something in his life that he's struggling with or something in his life that he's striving towards. This term is used to describe athleticism. I'm not what I once was. I played basketball last week with some coworkers. And I have some coworkers that are over 10 years older than me. And I'm looking at them. And if I was 10 years younger, I'd be getting buckets right now. My mind is not moving, or my mind is moving faster than my body. But I love the imagery of athleticism because it speaks towards striving of movement, of, of, of competition. And here Paul is saying there's something in his life that he's striving for, just like the imagery of competitive sports. Perhaps if you don't like athletics, you might think of agriculture. 
just this idea of, of working the land. I come from a family, this sounds stereotypical, but I come from a family of rice farmers. And when I grew up going back to the Philippines as a child, my dad would show me, hey, listen, this is how our family made a living. And you would see these people wake up before the sun rose. And you'd see them working all throughout the day, planting rice, harvesting rice. And it's hard work. And Paul is saying, listen, there's something here in verse 2 that I want you to know. That I'm working hard. I'm striving towards something. And the nature of this striving and struggling is not necessarily spelled out here in this verse. But I think if you take a step back and look at the broader life and ministry of Paul, you would see that he's striving for the Lord. He writes this letter and he's unable to see the Colossians himself because he's in jail. Why is he there? Because of his faithfulness to the Lord. Paul would even say in his other, ter- in his other, uh, in his other letters, like his letter to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 12 and 30, he uses this idea of striving to describe his preaching and proclamation of the gospel. Ministry is hard work. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, he uses this word to describe his pastoral care. It's not just preaching. It's spending time with the people of God, walking with them through their highs and lows, teaching them, walking with them, discipling them, correcting them, encouraging them, being there with them. He says it takes energy. It's work. Thank God for faithful pastors who strive and labor and care for us. I would venture to even say that Paul's struggling even involves his bold confrontation of false teachers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and chapter 16, he again uses this idea of striving to discuss his or to describe his confrontation of false teachers. We like to use this term uh, holy boldness. There are times where you need courage and you need to have courage for the right things. There are times where living the Christian life it actually does mean standing up and saying no to the world. And it requires holy boldness. And so here I'd say that all shades of what we had just looked at or what we had just discussed are what Paul means when he says, this is the struggle that I have. This is what I'm striving toward. It's that all of this opposition that I'm experiencing, whether I'm in jail, whether I'm ministering, whether I'm preaching, or whether I'm discipling or counseling, this is what I mean when I talk about struggle. We see this struggle even in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, when he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Here in the book of Colossians, he does speak of his struggle, For the sake of the gospel, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I say this so that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument. He's laboring to make the case clear for the purity of doctrine to be seen among these believers. Paul's struggle is one that describes the opposition he faces for faithfully carrying out the will of God in his life. Now, let's create a distinction. Sometimes we struggle 
and face opposition for righteousness' sake. That's what Paul's speaking of here. He's not talking about struggling because of your own sinful, the consequences of your sin. There's a difference. There's a difference because between you having committed sin, being guilty of sin, and being unrepentant of your sin, and living in that, and living with the consequences of that, versus living a life of righteousness and then receiving or being confronted by opposition. Paul here is speaking of those who are faithfully living. Now, if you are living in unrepentant sin today, the message is simple. Repent. Come to the Lord and we will see that he does grant forgiveness to those who run to him. But I believe that Paul here is communicating the intense obligation he has for others, not as an apostle or not as a leader in the church, but simply as a Christian. Part of living a Christ-centered life is not necessarily just admiring people like Paul who can have a Christ-centered life, but it is mimicking and following in the example of those who lead us in that Christ-centered life. And so when Paul says that he struggles and he's striving, this is something that we all must feel and experience. Paul's suffering and hardship are the result of a gospel-centered life. Yet despite the opposition he faces for faithfulness to Christ, he continues to press on, knowing that joy in Christ far exceeds the joy that the world has to offer. Stop for a moment and put yourself in Paul's shoes. He's in jail. And not only is he in jail, he has no idea if he'll get out or when he'll get out or what will happen to him. Think about that. Now, it's easy for us as Christians after the trial to speak of God's faithfulness. But when you're in the midst of it, When you don't know what tomorrow will bring and the only thing that you see in front of you is a blurred vision because your eyes are filled with tears. Will you press on? Will you continue to strive? Paul, despite all of this opposition, in his current state is still striving for the gospel, even though it landed him in jail. Are there limits to your obedience? Is there a limit to your faithfulness? We must say at this point that faithful Christian living is not always easy, but it is always rewarding. Just like exercise. It's not always easy, but it's always rewarding. Paul sets an example for all the saints. Notice this striving, while it is gospel-centered, in verse 2, it also has a component to it in verse, or chapter 2, verse 1, excuse me, verse 1, where it is and has an object, other saints. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, I have this great struggle on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face... A Christ-centered life is not just proclaiming the gospel. It's not just 
uh, experiencing trials in isolation, but a Christ-centered, gospel-centered life, something that you strive to accomplish and do, includes and must include other people. This is why we have what God has given us, a family called the church. He says he's agonizing, he's striving on the behalf of the Colossians and the Laodiceans and those who have not seen his face. Many will say that this is a reference solely to prayer. Well, I believe that's there because how else can you suffer on behalf of people you have never met? We also find, though, that, the, that this idea of striving on behalf of others probably also includes his preaching and proclamation, his teaching ministry, and even his counseling ministry because he knew people that were in and with the Colossian saints. The identity of these people that Paul suffers for is stated in the remainder of the verse. I already read it. The Laodiceans, and notice, all those who have not personally seen my face. What, amaz- what an amazing statement of Christian character and genuine concern. It's easy for us in Los Angeles to drive down the 405 and just be so frustrated with all the traffic, not realizing that we probably drive past millions upon millions of people a week. And we care more about where we're going in the short term than where they're going for eternity. Paul is saying that I have a concern for these saints, even though I've never met them face to face. The Colossian church was in a region known as the Lycus Valley. Here, the neighboring cities such as Laodicea and Hierapolis were there, very close, some 10 miles or so within the Colossian region. And we see and know that Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians with the intent that these people in these other cities would read the letter too. He says in chapter 4, verse 13, read this from amongst you guys, amongst you guys, and when you're done, give it to the Laodiceans. Hierapolis is referenced in Colossians chapter 4. It's not referenced here in verse 1, maybe perhaps because the, the threat of false teaching was not as close to the Hierapolis city as it was to these other two. But nonetheless, Paul is showing that he cares for people he's never met. That's difficult to fathom, but I do think that there is a human connection that we can make here that even unbelievers can have compassion for people they've never met. Think about what you read and see in the news every morning. What is is the top of the headlines every morning? Every morning when I get up and I read the news, I'm watching world events of war. And I don't care what continent you're on, because we know that there are multiple, right? There are multiple wars going on. And when I see images of women and children, of soldiers in the trenches, I'm not going to ask what side you're on. But when I see images of just human beings in hurt from a human being to human being, there's pain. And I don't know if I'm just getting older, but I often think to myself, what would I do if I was in that situation? If I was separated from my wife, if I was separated from my parents or from my sister or from my loved ones, and it was just me in isolation, not knowing if they were safe. 
there's, there's a tenderness that we have because we're human beings. Now take that principle and apply that to the family of God, to the people of God. That even before these wars broke out in the last six months or two years, that there were saints around the world, Christians, people that we will spend eternity with that are suffering. There are saints around the world that are not only physically suffering, but are in environments where the threats to their spiritual riches are worse than the threats of ours. Love for other saints is something that we as Christians should inherently have because God has loved us. You know that, right? Paul tells the Thessalonians in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, that God taught them how to love by, by dying for them. We are taught by God what real and true love looks like. He informs the, the Philippians even to receive Epaphroditus and admire men like him on account of their f- faithful service to the Lord. Even, the, even though the Philippians had not met someone like Epaphroditus, he tells them to re- warmly receive them and welcome them and love them. He tells the Romans to look for the, out for the needs of others and to find ways to practice hospitality for people you've never met. In the book of Acts, the church in Antioch took an offering because they knew that there were saints in Judea that needed financial support. Christians, when we come together and when we are living a Christ-centered life, have a natural God-given love for other saints, but it must be nurtured. It must be nurtured. So my question to you today is, how are you nurturing love for other people? How are you growing in your ability to love and care? And let's just begin with simple things, like your fellow church members. It's so easy to come to church and want to stay in our own lane and do our own things and then go out from Monday to Saturday, work our nine-to-fives, Take care of our own lawns and our chores on Saturday as a catch-up day. Sunday, go to church and then go on and hit repeat 52 times a year. But Paul is saying, there is this constant struggle I have for the spiritual wealth of other people. Some practical suggestions for you to foster a love for others. Of course, we know in addition to deepening your understanding of God's love for you by spending time in the Word... I would suggest to perhaps put yourself in positions to practice selflessness. What does that mean? It means taking a fellow church member out to a meal. It means grabbing coffee with the express purpose to get to know them. To listen to them, to hear out their needs, in addition to telling people that you're praying for them, maybe actually text them and call them and say, what are actual prayer requests that you have? Starting small like that can foster growth and love for other people. Paul in Colossians chapter 2 verse 1 says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, for all who have not personally seen my face. 
Do you strive to live a gospel-centered life? I get two hours, right? (laughs) The second feature, not only does genuine faith strive for a Christ-centered life, genuine faith, the second faith, or the second feature of faith we'll look at is that genuine faith is strengthened by relationship and revelation. Genuine faith is strengthened by relationship and revelation. Notice verse 2 begins with the purpose that Paul is struggling. It says, I have this struggle for other people in verse 2, so that their hearts may be encouraged. So that their hearts may be encouraged. The, The term here, encouraged, might also be translated or understood as strengthened. Now, let's take a minute to think about what Paul is actually saying. If you need to be encouraged, what does that mean? It means that there's something what? Discouraging you. If you need to be strengthened, what does that mean? It means that there's something weakening you. And again, I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older, but I'm tired already. (laughs) I'm tired already. And I read the news and I look out into the world and I'm discouraged already. I wake up and that's my default position. My alarm clock goes off for a 5 a.m. start time at work at 3.30 in the morning. And when my eyes open, I'm tired. When I look at my phone and read the news, I'm discouraged. So there is a need here for us as Christians to just realize that living in this fallen earth with all of the noise that the world is throwing our way to be encouraged or to be strengthened. And the way that the word of God tells us to find this encouragement, to find this strength, notice in verse 2 that our hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. Again, a a, a word or a phrase that involves the people around us. He's speaking to the church in Colossae and he's saying, you guys need to be knit together in love, bound up together in love. Unity and love cannot be separated. That's a very important aspect of what Paul is trying to communicate here. You cannot be united and not have any love in the air. Just think about what it's like when you fight with your significant other. My wife's here, gotta be careful. (laughs) When you argue with your significant other, you could be in the car with each other, but you ain't in the car with each other. The person who's sitting in the passenger seat, when there is divisive disunity, when there's an argument going on, is looking out the window, rolling their eyes, shaking their head. I'm not. (laughs) But you, you understand what I'm trying to say, right? You could be united in the same, physically in the same place, but in the spiritual realm, you could be worlds apart. Paul is saying that one of the ways that a Christian is strengthened as, as he is striving for the, the spiritual well-being of other people, one of the ways that we are strengthened is as a church being united together. And that involves you being present in the life of the body. 
This idea of being knit together is found in Ephesians chapter 4, and it's even found later on in chapter 2, verse 19 of Colossians. The idea, the idea of unity is important because the false teachers are in and among them. And so if you're going to go head to head with false teachers, you need to make sure that your team has your back. There is, in reality, the strength in numbers, but it's not just strength in numbers. It's strength in numbers in the right things. We want to make sure that we're linking arms, that we are united in the teaching of God's word. And that we're not just being Bible thumpers who want to use our intellect to prove people wrong, but we are people who are committed to the word and express that in love. You, want, you just don't want to be right. Because when you're right, you can be a jerk about it. And you could take what's right and hold it over that person's head and make them feel like the smallest person on earth. But when, you, when you're right and you're right with love and you care about that person and you say, listen, I, I know that the wrongs were committed or, or sins were committed or, or that I, I might be on the side that's right, but I'll, in love, I want to help you get back up. And I want us to move together, united. And you know what? Even if it means me moving at a pace slower than what I'm used to, for your sake, let's do it together in love. I remember in high school basketball, uh, they used to make the guards run a, uh, their, their, our laps a certain time. And if you finish first, you had to go run back and find the slowest person and finish with them. And so once we all started getting close to the finish line, we all started slowing down. <laughs> and then the coach would yell, hey, don't dog me. Finish, run straight through the line. And then if you were one of the fastest people, which I never was, genuinely, you have to go back and run with the slowest runner. This unity in love and this phrase indicates that we should not be dividing truth from our emotions and from our practices. Where love exists, you will find unity. I will say as a theological comment that you should know this as well, that unity is given to us from Jesus Christ when we are saved. You know that you did not create the unity that exists in the church. Christ created that unity when he died on the cross. Because in John chapter 17, when he prays, he says, Father, unite them as you and I are united, that they may be united. And because unity is a gift to the church, it must be guarded by us. It must be nurtured and deepened by the members of the church. Do not take the unity that you have in Christ for granted. And you know what that looks like? You know what the maintenance of that unity looks like? It looks like loving people when they seem to be unlovable. It means confronting sin when sin is exposed and dealing with the sin when it's been, ex been exposed. It means finding those who are weak among you and encouraging them. 
It requires hard work. True encouragement. If you are discouraged today, if you are weakened in the faith today, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps one of the reasons is because you have a low view of your membership in the local church. Perhaps you've chosen to hide from accountability when that might be the thing you need the most. Perhaps you've neglected the benefit that other Christians have in walking alongside of you. How are you contributing to the strengthening of unity in the life of the body? Nurture it. But notice the strengthening of the saint is not just done in community. The second half of the the verse talks about finding strength in what I would call revelation. The rest of the verse says, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. We'll stop there because that's a lot of words stacked up by Paul. It's actually quite a difficult phrase when you try and piece it all together. But if I were to simplify it, he's saying three words. Riches, assurance, and understanding. Now, how do those three words relate to one another? The NASB tries to tie together how we should understand this. It says we want to attain all the riches or all the wealth that comes from this assurance, which is of understanding. I think the ESV has a clearer translation when it says to reach all all the riches of full assurance of understanding. Now, if if we're getting confused, let's just try and simplify this. What Paul is saying here is that if you want to be strengthened, you need to be rich. Well, what does it mean to be rich? Well, you're rich when you have assurance. Then the next question is, well, where does that assurance come from? It comes from understanding. It comes from Revelation, what God has revealed, and your commitment to what God has revealed so that you can have assurance so that when the world comes and tells you that you don't need Jesus Christ dead and resurrected from the grave, you would say no, because that's my assurance. That when the world tells you that we have a better way of salvation, you can have assurance that, listen, the Bible says that there's one way, one truth, and one life. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus Christ. When the world says that there are other ways than Jesus, you can with assurance say, no, Christ and Christ alone. And in that assurance, you are rich. So that's what this passage is saying. It's saying that those who are are encouraged, those who are strengthened, are people who accumulate wealth. What kind of wealth? The kind of wealth that only assurance can give. What kind of assurance or where does that assurance come from? It comes from understanding. What are we understanding? His word. Perhaps you are struggling. Perhaps you're weak. Perhaps you're discouraged because you are not deeply rooting yourself in God's word. It's no surprise to us then that the psalmist would say that the word of God is more desirable than gold. Yes, much more than fine gold. I don't know what Bruno Mars was singing about, 24 karat gold. 
But God's word is more valuable than what those metals can give you. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 10 and 11 says, God says, take my instruction and not silver. I love this. And knowledge rather than choices gold, for wisdom is better than jewels. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, when he uses that, he uses metals that as he mentions them, they increase in value. He says, don't take the silver. Don't take the gold. Don't take the jewels like diamonds. Because what you get from going to God's word is more valuable than all of those things. You know, we as human beings have a really strong ability to take in information. You might think like, well, I'm done with school. I'm done with studying. Or I'm done with, you know, trying to learn. I just want to do my job and live my life. and No, but we have an incredible amount of ability to take in information. You know that, right? We know our favorite athletes and all their statistics. We memorize the layout of our local Targets and Costcos. All right? Uh, recently, everyone's been posting online their, quote, their Spotify rap. Spotify is a, is a music app where you could stream music, and then it tells you all the details of what you've been doing this last year on that app for mine. For example, a little bit of transparency here. In the last year, I've listened to 48,742 minutes of music. When you total that out in the last 12 months, that's 33. If we were to play it straight, that's 33 straight days of music. The genre breakdown, thank God it was mostly Christian. (laughs) Had some R&B love for our date nights when my wife and I go out and have dinner. But if we really think about that, imagine 33 straight days worth of music. That's me listening, and that's me memorizing songs. That's me thinking about lyrics and chewing on rhythms and beats. And Right? Music is beautiful. We have an immense ability to take things in, and that's just music. That's not including the movies that we watch, the things we stream on television or on our laptops, or on our phones. We have a a, a huge capacity to take things in. And here it's saying, if you want to be strengthened, there's something you should be taking in, and it's understanding. What are you doing to cultivate, to cultivate your understanding of God's word? We live in a world where we have so much access to God's revelation, but it's so easy to ignore. Every morning is a battle to check my email or to read this book, to close the book, get ready for work, go run out the door and do whatever it is on my to-do list. Beloved, sometimes when when we find ourselves weak and discouraged, it's because we are neglecting revelation. Do you seek out opportunities to take in God's word? Not just on Sundays, or maybe not even just in your day-to-day reading, but even in fellowship with other saints through Bible study, even through the listening of a sermon, or even an audio recording of somebody reading out scripture. Genuine faith 
Genuine faith is strengthened by revelation and relationship. Third feature, third and final feature. Not only is genuine faith something that strives for a gospel-centered life, not only is genuine faith something that is strengthened by revelation and relationship, but thirdly, genuine faith is supplied to us in Christ. It's supplied to us in Christ. Why does Paul need to say this at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3? Notice when he says that we would have this full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. <clears throat> Why do we have to be specific here about being supplied this wisdom in Christ, this knowledge in Christ? It's because Christianity is not merely about intellect. There are people in this world that are smarter than us, who might even know the Bible better than us, but do not believe. There will be people in hell that know the Bible. And they might know the Bible better than you and me. So Paul has to say, listen, there's this knowledge, there's this assurance. You have all these false teachers that are trying to say that. And then he says, wait a minute, this knowledge, this assurance that you get, this understanding, it should bring you or result in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. What is so mysterious about Christ? I don't know. What's so mysterious about God in human flesh? What's so mysterious about Christ? How about God in human flesh dying? How about the creator being amidst the creation? How about the one who made water being thirsty? How about the one who made the sun wanting to stand under the shade? How about the one who makes food for all of existence becoming hungry? There is a mystery. And Paul would even say, not only is this incarnation, God taking on human flesh, a mystery, but that he would come and die for us and give eternal life to Gentiles like you and me and then dwell within us. That's a mystery that the world's smartest people never saw coming. This mystery is the mystery of, of Christ incarnate and the offer of salvation that we have in him. Here we find out that when we come to the Lord, when we come to his word and we seek to understand revelation, we cannot do that apart, being, apart from being united with Christ. If you do not have faith in Christ, you just have knowledge. And that knowledge, as we saw when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, is only going to be used for your further judgment. But when you have Christ, notice, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We could even understand this, this use of the word all. We could almost say that because it's all in Christ, there's an exclusivity of Christ. In Christ, we could say, and even understand this passage to say, in Christ alone are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
This idea of wisdom and knowledge is not just intellect, even though one of the terms might convey the idea of intellect, but it's also practical knowledge. You do know that living the Christian life is extremely practical, right? You don't know what to do in your marriage? Go to the wisdom found in Christ. You don't know how to deal with your unruly kids? Go to the wisdom that's found in Christ. You don't know how to deal with the, the members of your church and the, the, the friction and the sins that might, you might be confronted with? Go to the wisdom that's found in Christ. You want to honor the Lord in the workplace or in the school, in the university, when all of these people are telling you what you should value and how you should live? Go to the wisdom that is found in Christ. Paul says that all the treasures, all the value are found in Christ. And what's interesting is that Paul stacks all of these words, knowledge, assurance, wisdom, understanding, treasure, mystery, things that are hidden. And these are all key words that the false teachers were using to persuade the Colossians. They're saying, I have true knowledge. I got the true keys to the mystery of godliness. And Paul is saying, no. Don't listen to them and all the extra things that they're adding. All of those things are found in Christ. And this is not something that's new to us or to them. This is something that has always been true. These words are key words that you can actually also find, and I'll just summarize it because I don't have two hours. In Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he cannot understand the meaning of his dream. And the king of the, the earth's most powerful country says, bring to me all the wise men. Get me all the smartest people that you can find, and I'm going to tell them my dream, and I expect for them to tell me what it means. I want to know the details and the mysteries that have been shown to me. Guess what? One by one. All of the world's smartest people that this, the most powerful man in the world had at his fingertips, they come and they cannot come up with an answer. And then Daniel. Daniel comes up. In Daniel chapter 2, he says this in verse 19. Listen to these key words. Then the mystery, the mystery was revealed to Daniel. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom, right, Keyword: wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. These are all words that we also find in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. And then it says in verse 22, it is he, referring to God, who reveals the profound and hidden things. God has always held the truth in his hand. I don't care if you're 500, 600 B.C. in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, 60 AD in the time of Paul writing to the Colossians, or 2023, God is the owner of truth. And the value and treasure of that truth is found in him. 
Think about, let's think about this going back to the book of Colossians. Think about the treasures that Paul tells the Colossians that they possess in Christ. Think about this, Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. One of the treasures we have in Christ is that before God, we could stand qualified. Think about what he says at the end of verse 12, to share in the inheritance of the saints. You have a heavenly inheritance waiting for you. That's a treasure that belongs to you in Christ. Think about what he says in verse 13. He rescued us. What does that mean, being rescued? It means that you are in trouble and you needed redemption. That is a treasure that belongs to you in Christ. Notice, not only are you rescued, but in verse 13, you're transferred. You're a citizen of heaven because of who you are in Christ. Verse 14, in him we have redemption in Christ. Not just redemption. I love how verse 14 ends. You have in your possession the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 22 of chapter 1, it says, you have been reconciled. Verse 28 says, you have been made complete. And knowing all of these things about what we are and who we are and what we possess in Christ, why would we ever turn away from him? Why would we allow the logic and reason of a fallen world to lead us away from Christ? Why would we allow the voice of the world to ring louder in our hearts and mind than his? The broader teaching of the New Testament teaches us that God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness in him. In Christ, the broken are repaired. In Christ, the divided are united, the weak are strengthened, the foolish are made wise, the lonely have eternal companionship, the heartbroken find love, lawbreakers find forgiveness, sinners are made saints, and the orphan is made a son. You are rich in Christ. You are rich in Christ. Just to end our time, on March 24, 1820, a child was born blind. At a young age, her mother told her that sometimes God keeps us from seeing physical beauty so that we might have a deeper understanding of the spiritual beauties that exist. And so she gave her life over to the writing of poetry. This individual would go on to say, if I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind for when I die, the very first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Jesus. These are the words of Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer. One day, Fanny Crosby was sitting on her porch talking with her neighbor, and her neighbor said, I wish I had money, because if I had money, I would be able to leave an impression upon the world. And she turned to her neighbor and said, take the world but give me Jesus. 
She would then, shortly after having this discussion with her neighbor, write these words, Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abideth ever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul, with my Savior watching o'er me, I can sing, though billows roll. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Let me view his constant smile. Then throughout my pilgrim journey, light will cheer me all the while. Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross, my trust shall be. Till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Is this our mentality? And let me ask you one last time. Are you rich? Are you rich? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and the simplicity that your word calls us to, to be people of simple faith, of simple trust, of genuine faith, genuine trust. As we had seen in your word, give us the kind of genuine faith that strives towards towards Christ-centeredness. Give us the kind of faith that is strengthened by those around us and by going to your word. And give us the kind of faith that is supplied and given grace and the energy only in Christ. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We give you all the glory and we pray these things in your name. Amen.